going to advance the slide there, and I would encourage you, if you would, to open your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm 46 this morning. Psalm 46 this morning. I want to tell you, before I begin, just a little bit about what Christmas is like at the Shields house, me and Laurel. Um, you see this coffee thing here, right? Some of you are looking and saying, that's the very same one you've had for 100 years, Pastor Steve. And it's not really, because um, the one that I had, I put that sticker on that Rachel Young gave us when she came back. And when it started to peel off, I peeled it off and peeled the paint right off of it. And I said, I, I need a new one. So back in October, November was it, I went ahead and bought this one. And when it came, I opened the Amazon packaging and yeah, that's it. I like that. And I walked into where my wife was and I handed it to her and I said, gift wrap this. I want it for Christmas. <laughs> that's Christmas at the Shields house. And that's a great way to control, to hear that word, to control what you're getting for Christmas. If you came in... Uh, Early, or if you came in at the start of the service, uh, you already saw the QR code. I'm going to put that on the opening slide, and you can load up the Bible app that way. Otherwise, just go to the Bible app and click the menu, look for an event near you, and you'll find that. Um, those Bible app events are almost always available to you. Uh, if you have a paper Bible or another Bible, you can just go to Psalm 46, and you'll find what we're talking about there this morning. With Advent behind us, we're actually uh, uh, resuming our study on just some stretches of highway that we want to avoid. I'm really indebted to Jay Stringer, uh, whose work served as kind of a starting place for the thoughts that I'm sharing with you this series. We've already looked at a number of things, uh, streets that we want to avoid. One of them was the entitlement interstate. Does that sound familiar to you? Another one's the escapism extension. Another was the intrigue intersection. Today we're looking at the control corridor, a corridor uh, passage through something. And if you're looking at the screen, you can see, yeah, that's kind of a corridor right through the heart of the city there. That's a city in the Middle East. I found that online. Uh, Royalty free. Thought I'll use that one. You you can look and you can see the people in control corridor that are there. um, They're all neatly placed in their lanes. They're exactly where they should be. And for that reason, you know, that's not Pittsburgh. Uh, And, uh, and, and, and they're very, very careful to be where they should be in the control corridor. What you can't tell from that picture is they're not happy. They're, 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 they're glad to be where they're at. They're in control. But they're not happy. Uh, they're not happy because they live their life in the control corridor. Um, what do we call people that are like real control people? Control freak? Have you heard that? Yeah. Ever been called a control freak? I have. My daughter used to call me that with regularity, right? Yeah. yeah. Micromanager? I've been called that as well. I, I found another one, though, and this is the one I'm going to use from now on. Mr. Bossy Boots. I really like that. I really like that a lot, Yeah. I struggle with issues of control, and if you haven't struggled with issues of control, you're not human. Uh, you will struggle with them if you haven't. It's just part of the human condition. I can remember years ago that a, a friend of mine, I'm talking VHA, VHS tapes years ago. That's how long ago this story is. A friend of mine, it was a guy in my church, he bought his wife a Christmas present. And he decided, I'm going to avoid all the problems that most guys have with buying Christmas presents for their wife. I'm going to think about, what, what, does, what does she need? And he just looked at her life and says, what is it that my dear wife needs? And he took time to think about, what will enrich her life? You know, as I choose this gift, I want to give her something to enrich her life. And what, will, what can I give her that will be a blessing to others as well along the way? And acting on, uh, on those kinds of questions, this naive husband hopped into his pickup truck and headed out to Kmart. Now you know how long ago this was, right? Got out of his pickup truck, went right into Kmart, and walked right into the center aisles there. That when you walk in the store, they have those big bins there, and he saw exactly what to get his wife. He got her the videotape collection of the Kathy Smith exercise and weight loss videos. Oh, 
Oh, my. Uh, you know, like maybe if she had asked for them, but she didn't, right? And, and, and maybe, maybe if fitness was a hobby that she was committed to, but it wasn't. Maybe if she had said to him, you know, I was in Kmart the other day and I saw these exercise videos. They were just really expensive, but she didn't. And his Christmas was not near as merry as he hoped it would be. No. No, for those of you wondering, it wasn't me. I've never had a pickup truck. <laughs> Otherwise, it might have been, right? You can identify the problem, right? You can see the problem he had. It boils down to one thing. He was kind of crossing a boundary and going into a place in a relationship that wasn't his, right? It wasn't his. That's kind of <clears throat> what I want to talk about today. He was, whether he would admit it. And, and this is not always the case. If your spouse got you that for Christmas this year, they might not be like my buddy was, so give your spouse a break. But <laughs> but whether that gentleman knew it or not, because his spouse was very outspoken about it, he crossed a boundary into an area of control that wasn't his to control. And control can be a real struggle. You're cruising along down the highway, you're heading along, and before you know it, you're nebbing into someone else's business, and you're in the control corridor, and you're unhappy. I want to read to you Psalm 46. I hope you open your Bibles or your apps there. I'm going to read it at the start of the service, and then we're going to talk about control in general, and then we're going to read, look through this psalm again at the end of the sermon, and just kind of see how can we apply these concepts to our life. So Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, his, he lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation, desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, I don't like this next sentence. He burns the shields with fire. That's not talking about pastor shields. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Wow, those words tucked there in verse 10, they're kind of like favorite words. How many times have you heard them, said them, heard them sung? Be still and know that I am God. You don't have to control every little thing. You can be still. You don't have to manipulate or tweak or advise or counsel everything there is for you to counsel and manipulate. You can be still and you can let God be God. Now, as we begin to dig into this issue, I think it's good to remember that control can be kind of a tricky thing. For some of us, negative experiences with controlling people have made us see control in any form as bad. This is especially true if you tend to be a free spirit in a rigid environment. I'm not speaking from my own experience at all. Yes, I am. But control isn't really bad. In fact, control is something that God looks for us to embrace 
it's in the Bible that we're to embrace it. He gave control to Adam and Eve, to humankind. I mean, right at the start in chapter 1 of Genesis, in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then he says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. God is saying, be in charge. You're in control. This is your job. So control is not a bad thing, and it's not even wrong to want to control things. It's a God-given responsibility. He expects you to be in control of yourself. In Galatians 5.22, when he's speaking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And even when the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor about establishing congregations and maintaining a church family, he he says, here's what the overseers of that group of people should look like. And he has a list of of the character trait he's looking for. And in verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul says, he must manage his own family well and see to it that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of respect. So control is just part of human existence. It's part of healthy living, in fact. However, control becomes a problem under a number of cases. Those cases would involve who's exercising the control. I mean, it's not your job to control every little thing in every little person's life. That's when control can be a problem. Control can be an issue when you think about what it is that's being controlled. It is not my job to adjust the thermostat in your home. (laughs) That would be a problem. Control can be an issue regarding when it is executed. And this is one of the things, I'll talk about this a little bit more later, just by way of illustration, but this is one of the things that that parents struggle with. Because when your child is born, you have absolute control. You're doing everything. And and over the years that follow, it depends how long it takes your child to reach adulthood, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, during that, that time, you're kind of weaning them of the need for your control, but you're also kind of weaning yourself of the need to control your child and letting them control their own lives. There's a question of where the control is taking place. If you're in my car and I'm driving, you're going to wear your seatbelt or you're going to get out. But... If you're in your car and you're driving, I'm not there. I don't care. Well, I do care. But it wouldn't be my job to try to control that. And there's the issue of why control is happening. Sometimes we want to control things just out of fear. And fear is never a real good motivation. Fear of, oh, I need to keep myself safe and avoid danger. I'll control this situation. And some people implement control just so they can show their muscle, you know? Like, yeah, I'm in control here, right? and then how it can be implemented. You you get the point. The control can become a problem for many, many different reasons, and yet it is something we're commanded to do. And so control, it can be tricky. It might be good to spend some time examining what I consider to be at least one of the engines, if not the engine, behind control. And I think the word I'm going to use, unless you're using the Bible app and you've looked ahead in the outline, I think the word I'm going to use is kind of going to surprise you, but I think it's accurate. I think the engine that drives control is lust. 
Now, as soon as I say that, you're thinking, lust, wait a minute, because lust holds a lot of red flags in our society. And we almost always think of lust in a negative sense. And frankly, in our English dictionaries, it is always a, a negative kind of thing. But biblically, it means desire. The biblical word that is translated lust some places is translated differently in other places. Desire is one of those ways. And so a desire can be something that's good or bad. And biblically, it can be positive or it can be negative. I mean, you can look at some scriptural examples of when the word lust, which in the Greek is epithumeo, you can look at some biblical examples of when the word lust is used positively, re- referring to a general longing. Uh, Stringer says that lust points to a great desire for a good thing. And so, you know, there could be a, a lust for beauty in a sunset. Oh, you know what? We need to get in the car and go down to the beach because I really want to see the sunset. I have this desire, this great desire for a good thing regarding seeing that beauty, or even the beauty of music. You can have a lust for belonging. I just need some friends. I, I, I feel like I, I want to belong to a group of people, or even a lust to belong to God. I want to be close to him. I had a thing happen to me this week, and I hadn't told anybody about it till now, so now I'll tell everybody that's kind of my style. But I'm sitting at my desk this week, and I, just this thought occurred to me, man, I haven't felt close to God in quite a while. I have a lust to feel close to God. It's, it's a good thing. A lust for friendship, casual ones, deeper ones. It is simply a great desire for a good thing. Jesus uses the word himself. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments here. When Jesus celebrated it, when he instituted communion at the Last Supper, Luke twenty-two fifteen says this, and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired... What do you think that word desire is? Epithumeo, lusted. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. It's a longing that he had. The Apostle Paul talks about wanting to go to be with Jesus, and, and he uses that same kind of phrase in Philippians 1.23. He says, I am torn between the two because I lust to depart to be with Christ. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's talking about a great desire for a good thing. And that desire can be good. It can even be good when it's about control. But we've all seen, we've all seen when lust goes bad. You know when lust is bad. It's wrong when you desire something that is not yours. That's called coveting. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And in that case, the question of whether the desire is a good desire or a bad desire has to do with who it belongs to. And so lust gone bad is desiring something that doesn't belong to you. Another place lust is bad is when you demand that which can only be freely given. That's kind of similar, isn't it? Because if you demand what can only be freely given, you are demanding something that's not yours. But more than that, you are demonstrating that you care more about yourself and your desire than you care about the person who possesses that which you desire. James talks about this, the outcome of this. In chapter 4, when he says, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? 
Don't they come from your lusts, your desires that battle within you? You desire what you don't have, so you kill, you covet, you cannot get, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You have not because you don't ask God. Are you beginning to see that there is an incredibly negative side to control? I was talking to Laurel about this message. She said, are you sure you want to use the word lust? Because that only means one thing to a lot of us, right? And I so appreciate my, Laurel, my Laurel's wisdom, <laughs> my wife's wisdom. But I want to, and the reason I'm using that word is because I, I don't want you to walk away thinking control is just like a little pimple. It's a cancer. It's a bad thing. The control corridor is not a good place to be. It, it is driven by the kind of lust that we want to avoid. And we want to avoid it because improper control, inappropriate desire, destroys relationships. I mean, by way of illustration, think about the conflict that is common between a a young couple and in-laws. You probably never experienced that. I never experienced that, but all of my in-laws experienced it with me. You know, a dad and a mom has spent literally decades sometimes influencing and training their child. They, that's a good thing for them to have done. That kind of control is a good thing for them to implement, and it's a hard thing to stop doing. I've just noticed it's really hard to stop being a dad sometimes in terms of control. And so maybe a, a dad who happens to be a father-in-law would, would look at his son-in-law and see the garage is kind of a mess where his son-in-law lives and the car is always parked outside. And that father-in-law might say something like this, with good intentions. It's a great desire for a good thing. He may say, hey, you ought to clean out your garage so you can get your car in so that your wife can go ahead and walk down and doesn't have to go out in the snow. <laughs> or maybe it's the mom. The mother-in-law says, wow, this bread you made is really good. I can give you my recipe. Johnny's used to that. <laughs> wow. You can, you can imagine the smoke, can't you? Yeah. Those kind of comments are often made with good intentions, but at their root, they're almost always born of lust, a great desire for a good thing that is overblown. Do you see the potential for damage, exercising or trying to exercise that kind of control? It can destroy relationships, and it displeases God. I think that's why probably we categorize lust negatively consistently. Because we know that when desire goes wrong, when it's inappropriate, when it's off base, it can be incredibly damaging. So kind of as we move toward the Lord's Supper, I I want to give you a couple keys for for staying out of the control corridor. And they come from the passage. Remember I said at the beginning, we're going to read Psalm 46, and we're going to come back and we're going to pull out some applications from it. And, and I have two main applications and some, some other thoughts to go along with the second one especially. You can see these things we're going to talk about at the communion meal. I would say one of the first keys to staying out of the control corridor is to simply know the one who really is in control. To know God. I want to take you through kind of a silly exercise for a moment. I want you to think of how many things there are in this universe, okay, that you have absolutely no control over. (laughs) There's a lot of them, right? There are far more things in this universe that you cannot control than there are things you're able to control. Okay, the universe is big. 
let's narrow it down a little bit. Let's narrow it down to planet Earth, okay? Because I'm having trouble controlling Pluto. I can't really see it out there. I can see the Earth. The, the Earth. How many things are there on the Earth that you can control? You're getting the point. That there are a lot more things on this Earth that you cannot control than those that you can. Okay, we don't have to do the whole planet. How about the United States of America? How many things are there in this country that you can control? There are many more things that you cannot control than you can. Okay, this is getting silly. Let's narrow it down. How about this state? Now, how about the county? No, wait, wait a minute. How about this town? How about the row that you're sitting in? I want to suggest to you that there are far more things in the row you are sitting in, even if you're sitting by yourself, <laughs> that you cannot control than those that you can control. The difference between what we can't control and what we can is absolutely un- uncountable. We could never come up with that number, which tells me that for us, control is a bit of an illusion. And so it would seem that God, in his providence, has given me a few things that I can control as a matter of my choice and left a lot of things to someone else's control, and ultimately, that someone else is him. First Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does what pleases him. He's in control. And it's good that he's in control because our Bible passage tells us, Psalm 46, that he cares for people. Your Bible's open there and you look at the very first sentence that says in verse one, God is our refuge and strength. Refuge. You need some safety, you can run to him. Refuge. You need some strength to deal with something, you can go to him and find strength. And his presence makes all the difference in the world because the verse goes on, verse one goes on to say, God is an ever-present help in trouble. He's never AWOL, he's never missing in action, he's never absent, he will never leave you or forsake you. He is always there. And when I say, and when I place on the screen, know the one who is really in control, I mean, study about him and learn about him so you can see his ability to control things and the way he cares for you. When I say, know the Lord, I am saying, know deep down in your heart that he is a sovereign king. You know what the word sovereignty means, right? It means he's the one who is in control. He is the one who calls all the shots. You know, a monarch, a king or a queen, is not like that here on earth, except in just a few countries. Britain has what they call a constitutional monarchy which means the queen can do what we told her she can do in the Constitution. But other than that, she can't. There's no Constitution where we tell God what he can and cannot do. Nothing controls or limits him. He is in control. And when I say know the one who is really in control, I'm saying know his heart for you, that he cares for you, that he loves you, that he holds you close. Know that, that he will never leave you alone that he is always present. And I want to tell you, if the bread in the cup, if they don't say anything else to you, they should say that. He loves you. He cares for you. He is with you. You want to let go of control? You want to be a little bit less of a Mr. Bossy Boots? (laughs) Know the one who's really in control. And second, trust the one who is really in control. Bible's still open to chapter 46 of Psalms, right? Verse 2 says to lean on him, regardless 
of the circumstances. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging, we will not give in to fear. Whatever storms come into your life, lean on God. This wasn't in the news much, but this past month it's been raining where my daughter and her family live. And they live in a desert. My son-in-law said, we don't usually get rain, but in six hours we got seven inches of rain. That's a lot of rain in a short period of time. The desert, a city of three million people in the desert, there are no storm sewers. Do you know why? Because it's a desert. (laughs) They don't need storms. So that water just lays there until it can work its way out of the city and out into the sea. It's pretty much a disaster. You can get caught in it without wanting to get caught in it. I have videos of my son-in-law driving through too much water on the highway, along with a bunch of other people. What do you do when a storm like that comes? Lean on God. God, you need to take care of me through this storm. Uh, he was at work. Storm broke, started, and he had to come home. And Esther sent a message that said, hey, pray. Brian's out driving in this. And he got home safely. Lean on God. It's not just overseas. It's just north of us. Can you tell what that is? That's Buffalo, New York. I think that that's probably right up to about here on me, that snow. You know, what was I looked different places, and, you know, the reports vary, but one of the reports said 51 inches of snow. 51 inches of snow. What do you do when you open your door to that? What do you do when, when they say no one can travel and you have a doctor's appointment? What do you do when no one can travel and your child needs some formula or something? What do you do? You've got to lean on God. And you're not just leaning on him to say, oh, I'll lean on God and my child will feed herself. <laughs> That's not how that works. But you find yourself leaning on him and saying, God, show me how you're going to help me through this. I trust you. Trust the one who's really in control. Lean on him, regardless of your circumstances. And receive the rest and renewal that he actually gives you. Verse 4 says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So look to the river. Look to the refreshment. Look to the streams. Look for God and receive rest from him. Because in the midst of your hardest trial, he has rest for you. If you'll look to him, rest so that you can handle the rest that is ahead of you. (laughs) Receive that rest from him and expect his protection. The nations, it says, are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. And then it says in verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He says that in verse 7, and then it's also the very last thing he says at the end of the psalm in verse 10. God protects us. Sometimes as your life is unfolding in a way that you don't desire that it would unfold, you're kind of like, God, where's this protection you offered me, you promised me? It's there because he's there. The Lord Almighty is with you. The God of Jacob is your fortress. Look at him. Find what you need, the protection you need in him. Find peace in him. Come and see, it says in verse 8, what the Lord has done, the desolations he brought upon the earth. And then in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Take this shalom, this goodness, this wholeness that God offers 
when you're tempted to grab hold and control something that you should not be controlling, when you're tempted to take something that doesn't belong to you, when you have that drive underneath your control of lust that makes you do what you know you should not do in that relationship, in that circumstance, be still and know. Be still and know that he is God. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a moment in time when we acknowledge, and if the worship team would like, they're welcome to come. It's kind of a moment in time when we acknowledge all these things about God. We acknowledge that he is the one who is really in control. The Lord's Supper is a moment in time where we look back at the cross and we see how infinitely trustworthy Jesus is. So lean on him. No matter what you're going through, you can lean on him. And receive this bread and this cup in a few moments. Receive it in acknowledgement that it represents his provision of rest and renewal in your life. And remember that it is his blood that indeed protects you from judgment. And you can trust his protection in all things. And when you take the bread and cup, take it trusting in the peace, the shalom that comes from God. I want to take just a moment and allow you to kind of prepare your heart for communion. You know, the scripture says one should examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. We know the context there was a context where people were not caring for one another. But we can see an application of that that says to me and to you that we don't take this quickly or without regard for what it is about. As you take a moment, as Drew plays the guitar, as you take a moment in the quietness of your heart to examine yourself, examine your heart in terms of how you are trusting God. And are you allowing control, lust, a good desire, a great desire for a good thing, are you allowing that to get out of control? Do you need to reel it in a little bit and give it to him and say, Jesus, you control this. Is it damaging relationships that you have? Has it damaged them? Is it displeasing to God? So examine yourself before God and speak to him, ask him about this issue of control and relinquish that which you're holding that you should not be holding to him. We'll take just a few moments to pray quietly. tells us that on the night he was betrayed Jesus took the bread he said this is my body which is for you in some churches you need to be a member in order to take communion or have gone to a class that's not the case here if you're trusting in Christ to pay for your sins, for your salvation then you're welcome to participate we would encourage you to do so I want to ask one of the elders who has the microphone if they would pray a prayer of thanks regarding the bread and then we'll take it together David?
Amen. The body of Christ. The scripture says that afterward, he took the cup. The cup, we're told by the Apostle Paul, was often referred to as the cup of blessing. And I think that's appropriate, right? Because his blood shed for my sins, for your sins, is such a blessing to us. And when we are loved like that, when we have received like that, that blessing allows us to relinquish control. It helps us to know the one who is in control. It helps us to trust the one who is in control. Go and ask the elder who has the mic, Eric, would you pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ and we'll take it together. Lord, I pray that um, I would have the desire to know you more. Lord, that I would have the desire to appreciate this time in history, the sacrifice that you made for me or us. I pray, Lord, that I would honor and glorify you in all things that are said and done. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. We praise you. We give you the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The blood of Christ.